English is my first language. It's the only language <laughs> that I could speak with um, fluency. Uh, I took many years of Spanish uh, throughout my years of education. I took um, years of Spanish in grammar school, in high school, and in college. Uh, somewhere between uh, about, about 10 years altogether, I've taken, uh, I took Spanish in school. And I could communicate with purpose and meaning. Um, I, I, I could make some points. I could say certain things in Spanish. But I certainly lack a broad vocabulary. I lack anything but a surface-level understanding of the grammar of Spanish. And I lack the kind of recall that uh, comes from regular usage of the language. I say all that to say, I can speak it, but not all that much. I can say some things, but I can't say all that much. And it could be like that when it comes to the doctrine of the ascension for Christians. I mean, purposeful statements can be made, something can be said, but oftentimes, Christians might lack the broad vocabulary that they have with, say, other things in Scripture. Namely, say, the incarnation of Christ, or the crucifixion of Christ, or the resurrection. Christians may lack a measure of fluency to speak about the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to um, the things I mentioned, incarnation, crucifixion, and the resurrection... Typically, generally speaking, Christians are rather fluent in the significance of those events. When you think of the incarnation, when I say incarnation, we're talking about the eternally begotten Son of God taking on human flesh, being conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, subsequently being born in Bethlehem. And we know the significance of that. We know, according to the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus had to be made in every way like his brethren in order to redeem his brethren. He had to be the perfect representative, and that included being truly man while still being truly God. We know that it was in fulfillment of the scriptures as well that Jesus would be conceived in the womb of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. So we can conversate rather fluently on the doctrine of the incarnation. Likewise with the crucifixion. We know that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. It was prophesied in places like Psalm 22 in Isaiah 53, that the Messiah would die for our sins. To use language from 1 Peter 3, it was the just dying for us, the unjust, to bring us to God. It was on the cross that Jesus was made a curse, bearing the curse of the law, so that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. Our salvation hangs upon the fact that Jesus Christ absorbed the wrath of God so that we, through faith in him, might be justified we can conversate rather fluently about that. And the resurrection, also a topic in which Christians ought to be expected to speak with a measure of fluency. When we think of the resurrection, we know, according to Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered up for our offenses and he was raised for our justification. We know that we are begotten again. We experience regeneration, according to 1 Peter 1, through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So our justification, our regeneration is secured through Jesus' resurrection. We know, according to Paul in the opening verses of Romans 1, that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God through the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. 
We also know that it was additional proof that the Father had received the offering of the Son and that that offering was a good offering. So we could speak rather fluently on these things. And if you need to grow in that grace, you could listen to this message and go back to those four instances that I just gave, and you can go over it and you can become increasingly fluent with those things. But then we come to the ascension. The ascension. Now, some weeks back, we studied the ascension. We studied it verse by verse in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And we also studied Luke chapter 24, verses 49 through 53. The goal then for today is not so much to unpack the historical account, because we have done that. The goal for today, at least one of the goals, is that you and I would become increasingly fluent in being able to communicate, whether it's in our own hearts or to others, the significance of Jesus' ascension and the benefits that believers have derived and continue to derive from it. So I want to begin with first defining the ascension. When I say the ascension, what am I speaking about? A good, concise definition, I think, can be found in Lewis Burkhoff's Systematic Theology, where he says, the ascension may be described as the visible ascent of the person of the mediator, that's Jesus, from earth to heaven according to his human nature. It was a local transition, a going from place to place. Now, there's a couple of things that um, Louis Burkhoff said there that I want to call your attention to, but we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, in like manner, question 46 of the Heidelberg Catechism asks the following question. What do you mean by saying he ascended into heaven? And the answer portion says that Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. So I want to call to attention a couple of things in both of those statements and definitions. First, I want to remind you, and I want to take this for granted, so I want to make this point, that this was an historical event. It actually happened. Jesus was taken up from earth into heaven while his disciples watched. And one of the things that you notice when you read through the scriptures is that what happens in the scriptures is attested to so often by so many witnesses. The miracles that Jesus did were attested to by so many witnesses. Jesus' death on the cross was not secret and private where nobody could see what actually happened. It was public. There were witnesses. Jesus' resurrection was attested to by many witnesses. The disciples who were in the upper room, the 500 who saw him at once, the women who saw him on the road, and so on. Cleopas and the other disciple, James and Peter, and the examples could go on. The Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. There were witnesses, and in like manner, the ascension did not happen in secret. There were witnesses to this event. Christianity is not an abstract philosophy. Rather, it is rooted in history and attested to by many witnesses. It's the first point I want to make. Second, beginning at the end of Burkhoff's definition, notice that he stated that Jesus' ascension was, quote, a local transition, a going from place to place. Now, contrary to the 80s song, heaven is not a place on earth. <laughs> Nor is heaven simply a state of mind. Some people will say that, that heaven is a state of mind. 
You know, when you're so angry and you're so frustrated and you're in the, the depths of despair and despondency and depression, that is hell on earth. When you're suffering on earth, that is hell. But when you're in the, the heights of euphoric thinking and joy, that is heaven. It's a state of mind. It's, it's a concept. The scripture doesn't teach that. The scripture teaches very clearly that heaven is not a, a place on earth. It's not a state of mind. Heaven is a real place. It's a low cow. It is where the throne of the omnipresent God is located. It is the place to which angels go up. It is the place from which angels come down. You see that over and over again in the scriptures. It is a place that is described in the scriptures in the New Testament as paradise. It is the place where Jesus ascended to and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It is indeed a real place. No, we can't find heaven on a map. Right? SpaceX isn't going to find heaven. You know, hey, we got a report. We found heaven. There it is. It's not happening. But that doesn't mean that it's not a real place. Spiritual beings, like I just said, spiritual beings like angels can go and come from there. Spirits of just men made perfect abide there. The resurrected Christ, whose body is comprised of flesh and bone, and can only be at one place at one time, is enthroned there. It's a real place. And know what a place it is. But I want us to remember that it is a real place. It's a place to which Jesus has gone to prepare a place for his people. It's a real place. And perhaps this is one of the ways in which the doctrine of the ascension can immediately help you and me. It can help us get our minds upon things above. When you swim in the ocean or when you swim in a pool and if you go underwater, you know you can only stay underwater so long. And if you stay underwater too long, you could do serious damage to your health, even your life. Right? You have to get your head above the water. Well, to use that kind of metaphor, I want to liken earthbound living with an earthbound perspective to being underwater for the believer. You need regular breaks, as it were, from life under the water where you get your head above the water of earthbound living and you breathe in heavenly realities. You need it. You can't just be bound to earthly things. The, 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 the thinking that goes through your mind can't just be, all right, who's going to be the Republican nominee? Is it going to be DeSantis or is it going to be Trump? Or maybe you're thinking it might be Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, whatever it's going to be. Like, who, who, it can't just be that. It can't just be, are, are the Fed going to usher in a digital dollar? Is that what's going to happen? It can't just be, what's going on with my body? Is my body breaking down? Is my body doing well? I don't know. It can't just be these kind of things. You can't just be thinking about earthbound things. Can we buy a house? Should we buy here? Should we do this? Should we do that? If all that you think about is earthbound things, earthbound things, it's as though you're just living underwater. No, there's a place for that as Christians. You need to. You need to be faithful in your stewardship in, of this wor- in this world as a Christian, as a husband, as a wife, and so on, as a worker, as a citizen. I, I get all those things. But you need to get your head above the water, and you need to breathe in heavenly realities. And I think the doctrine of the ascension helps our mind to get above the water. You need to enjoy. You know, if you were here last week, you know when we were talking about a cheerful heart being good medicine against the backdrop of a lot of bad medicine that's out there and the physiological benefits that are derived for Christians according to God's word in light of having a cheerful heart, yet alone the duty of a Christian and the glory that God gets from our cheerful heart. I think many of you had a cheerful heart developing in that moment as you heard about some beautiful heavenly realities. Well, the doctrine of the ascension is to help to that end, I think. Getting your eyes on the intercessory work of Jesus. 
the reality of his enthronement and what that means. The fact that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, yet not static. The fact that beauties right now are being enjoyed by saints who are in paradise. That there is actually a place that is prepared for you, etc. Can you imagine? I don't know if you've ever seen like advertisements from like, you know, places where they're advertising for people to come and spend a vacation here. This could be your dream vacation. And you don't get much. It's not like you watch a two-hour documentary about the place. It's not like you're seeing, you know, let's, let's see what these islands look like for two hours, or let's see what this place in Europe looks like for two hours. No, you get little glimpses, but it's enough oftentimes for people just to imagine how nice it would be to be there. And all it took was a few glimpses. You saw it, and you're like, oh, I would like that. We would have fun there. We'd be doing pretty well right now if we were there. In like manner, all you got to do oftentimes is get your head above the water of earthbound living, breathe in some glimpses of heavenly reality that are found in the Scriptures. Breathe it in, and may it fan the flames of your anticipation to be there one day. It'll help you live faithfully in the present as well. Just as a little bit of an aside, um, I had the opportunity, just as an illustration of this, I had the opportunity this week to be with my uh, uncle a couple of times who's in the hospital, um, suffering a lot of health issues, but suffering in light of an infection um, in his leg and his knee, and um, just in a lot of pain. And to hear him saying, um, yeah, I want to go and be with Jesus. And there would be moments where in light of his family telling him, like, no, don't say that. We want you to be here. We want you to be with us. Um, and so he'd say, Lord, you know, would you please preserve my life, essentially, so I might be there with them. But to hear this, to hear this man saying, I want to be with Jesus. Jesus, would you take me? Not, not, a, not a fear of death. But but believing that there's a heavenly reality to which he's going, believing that the Lord Jesus who loved him and gave himself for him would take him to be with, with him where he is, when you even just get glimpses of that, like I did, I don't know I don't know all the totality of what's going through his mind and heart, but I saw what I saw, and just those little glimpses of that helps me to remember that heaven is a real place. It's where Jesus is. It's the place where he's preparing a place and has prepared for his people. So now, with that being said, um, having considered the historicity and the actual locality of um, heaven and the historicity of the ascension, let's turn to the significance of the ascension. Okay, so when you think, why is the ascension significant, right? So what's so significant about it? It sounds like, via that definition, it's basically just a going from one place to another, The ascension is how Jesus got from point A, earth, to point B, heaven. So is it more than that? Because it sounds like that's what it is. And I want to tell tell you the significance of it far transcends that. Uh, This was even more than just a welcome home, which I could could imagine what that was like when the Son of God returned um, to heaven. Tried to paint a picture for you of that in our last message on the book of Acts, reading from Psalm 24 and imagining what it was like when the Son of God came back. But this was, and this will be the first element of significance I want to call your attention to, this was, if you will, a coronation. A coronation. Jesus' ascension is connected with his coronation. If you look in Paul's epistle to the Philippians, you see that Jesus humbled himself. He humbled himself to the lowest place, to the point of death, even death on a cross. But then you go into Philippians 2, verse 9, and you see that therefore God has highly exalted him. Highly exalted him. He humbled himself to the lowest place, and God exalts him to the highest place. 
Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It's a coronation. More about that and more about the dynamics of that highest place in a moment. But there are dynamics to this coronation that are, at least in my estimation, immeasurable by creaturely capacities. As Wayne Grudem noted, Christ received glory and honor that had not been his before as the God-man. So I want you to think about the significance of this event. Yes, it was a coronation, but in one sense, it was a restoration of the glory that Jesus had enjoyed from all of eternity. But it wasn't just a restoration of the glory he enjoyed from all of eternity. There was a sense of newness to it in the sense that Jesus, as the God-man, received glory and honor that he had not yet enjoyed as the God-man. Remember what Jesus prayed during his high priestly prayer, not too long before he would be crucified. John 17, verse 5, he said, And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. John 17, verse 5. This prayer is found in the Gospel of John, where prior to this, there are verses like John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before John 17, 5, there's verses like, John 8, 58, before Abraham was, I am. There were verses like John 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And this verse, John 17, 5, like those verses, is a witness to how Jesus was divine and co-eternal with the Father. The Son had enjoyed a glory that the Father had before the world began. But he did not have that glory as the God-man until he ascended into heaven. The beginning of Jesus' glorification, you might say, is found in his resurrection. The transition from the humiliation to Jesus' exaltation. But that moment of coronation at the right hand of the Father, him being in the Father's presence, the fulfillment of that prayer, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was is nonetheless connected to the completion of his redemptive work and his ascension into heaven. Jesus would be honored even as the Father was honored, to use language that he used in the Gospel of John. If you want a great example of this, you want to see this for yourself, look at Revelation 4, compare it with Revelation 5. Look at the way the Father is being sung to in Revelation 4. You can see that in Revelation 4, verse 8, and Revelation 4, verse 11. Look at the Father being sung to. Look at the words that are used there. And then look at the Son being sung to in Revelation 5. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Okay, so why else is the ascension significant? Not only was it the coronation of the Son of God, not only was it the the restoration of a glory that he had from before the world began, and the first time that the God-man would enjoy it as the God-man. The significance of Jesus' ascension is also witnessed to in the position that Jesus is described as having, being seated at the right hand of the Father. Being seated at the right hand of the Father. This is sometimes referred to as Christ's or Jesus' session. Now, for a lot of us, we say, well, what do you mean his session? Because when we think of the word session, we're thinking of something along the lines of you know, a meeting 
for a period of time where people are devoting some measure of time to a certain activity or business. That sounds like a session. Well, the way that the word was used in older English, it basically meant sitting down. So Christ's ascension to the right hand of the Father is connected with his session, with his being seated at the right hand of the Father. And oh, there is great significance in the fact that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. First, I'll mention this briefly. Uh, For starters, it's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In Psalm 110, verse 1, David wrote, The Lord, or Yahweh, said unto my Lord, Adonai, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. I.e., the Father said to the Son, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. One can imagine. I would love, if there's replay capacities that the Lord will allow for us in heaven, if there are moments of rewind, I'll tell you one of the many, 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 many things I'd want to see. I'd want to see if it happened, and I wouldn't be surprised if it did. I actually think that it did, my opinion. Just to see that moment where the sun ascends to heaven and just imagining Yahweh, the Father, saying to Yahweh, the Son, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Imagine. Maybe even just the glimpse of that. You're like, what practical benefit is that? Did you just feel joy? I had goosebumps. I'm not saying that's worth all that much, but it's, it's something. It's just saying there's a measure of excitement in this heavenly reality. Second, when you're thinking about, well, what does it mean that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father? Okay, fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. What else does it mean? I think Paul helps us to understand that as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. So we're kind of picking up as Paul is in the middle of a a prayer here. So we're picking up in kind of mid-thought, if you will. But there's a point I want want you to see from here. He says, picking up in verse 20, uh, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So he's calling attention to Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand. I think in verse 21, he's explaining a little bit of what that means. In verse 21, he says, Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. I think Paul is providing some of the implications of what it means to be seated at the right hand of the Father. It's the position of ultimate authority. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's at the right hand of the Father, implying a place of ultimate authority and power over all creation. Jesus has a position of authority, we're told in the text, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named. You could also reference 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 22 for similar language. Now, I don't think a Christian would say this, but because um, I think it would be crass to say it like this, but a Christian might wonder this nonetheless. I can understand why that's good for him, but what benefit does that have for me? So we're talking about the significance of the ascension. Jesus is there at the right hand of the Father. That's great, <laughs> but what's the benefit for me? Um, perhaps a biblical illustration and a comparison would be helpful at this point. Remember Joseph being raised to, if you will, the right hand of Pharaoh. 
You see this in Genesis chapter 41. Joseph was raised to the right hand of Pharaoh, if you will, and he was invested with great authority. If you were to look in Genesis 41, you see language like this, beginning at verse 40. Pharaoh speaking to Joseph, You shall be over my house, and all my people shall be ruled according to your word. Only in regard to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Continuing, verse 42 through 44. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring off his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. And he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around his neck. And he had him ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried out before him, bow the knee. So he set him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh and without your consent, no man may lift his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Now, that was good for Joseph, right? But was it just good for Joseph? Think about the good that Joseph did for so many, including his brothers who treated him so wickedly. Joseph was raised to a position of power under the authority of Pharaoh. He has all this authority invested in him, and he uses that authority for the good of people, including his wicked brothers who had done him such wrong. He leveraged his authority for good and for the preservation of their lives, yet alone the lives of others. And so I asked the question, are we to think that Joseph's administration was more beneficial and compassionate than that of the Son of God? By no means. You could say it was a pointer to it, but it is not greater than it. Think of Jesus being raised to the right hand of the Father for us, having the authority that he has for us, including the language that Paul uses there is language that's used of demonic powers. Over powers, demonic powers, principalities, he's over it all. He's over earthly powers, he's over demonic powers, he is over it all. And people would have good reason to be very, very, very concerned in an ongoing way about demonic powers and about earthly powers. People could live in perpetual fear, saying, what are these demons that exist in the world that I can't see? What are they going to do to me? How are they going to mess with me? How are they going to mess with my family? What are these earthly powers going to do? What are they going to do to me? What are going to be the implications of their decisions and so on? And one of the benefits that you could derive from considering the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ is by remembering that he is at the right hand of the Father. He's been invested with authority over all things so that nothing happens outside of the loving providence of the Savior who loved you and gave himself for you. He's over all. You don't have to live in perpetual fear. You don't have to live in fear of demons and principalities. Not only do you have a Savior at the right hand of the Father, but that same Savior has poured out the Holy Spirit upon you. If you are a Christian, greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. He's made you promises and so on, you do not need to live in fear. You are still being shepherded. His people are called to be vigilant, yes, but they can also rest in knowing that Christ is reigning. He is reigning. And this, this understanding, by the way, if if you get this, if you actually live in light of Jesus' ruling and reigning, this, I would argue, is part of what the Apostle Paul is praying for that would happen in the Ephesians' hearts in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, he was praying for them that they would understand the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. 
It's as though Paul's saying, I want you to understand this power that is leveraged towards you. And then he goes on in what I read to you, and he gives two illustrations of that. The resurrection and the ascension. He's praying that Christians would better understand that. So many times we live without the view of the power of God that is leveraged towards the good of believers. Both the power that's at work inside of them via the person of the Holy Spirit and the power that's sovereignly over them and over all. He's praying that they would better understand it. That power. What power? The power that raised Jesus from the dead. What power? That power that raised him up and put him at the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand of the Father. That power. It's at work towards us who believe. In you and for you and over you. Amazing. I think if you understand that this power is being leveraged towards you, earthly powers and demonic powers need not terrify you. Third, when you think of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, you say, okay, I get that. It's Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. I I get that. It's a position of authority. Jesus is over all. He's at the right hand of the Father. It's also significant because it connotes the completeness of Jesus' work. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3 says, When he had made purification for our sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To better appreciate this, I think we continue on in the epistle to the Hebrews and we look at Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, we see a kind of comparison here between the priests in the Old Testament and the ultimate priest, the high priest par excellence, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to read verses 11 through 14 of Hebrews 10, and I'll make a couple of comments so you see the beautiful contrast there. Beginning at verse 11 of Hebrews 10, And every priest stands, note that word, every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool, For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So what I want you to see, so you better understand and appreciate the fact that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. I want you to see the contrast. The Jewish priests, and including the high priest, but the Jewish priests are what are being depicted here most immediately. They're depicted as what? Standing. Standing. Why were they standing? Well, the picture is... They have to keep working. They have to keep offering sacrifices. Their work was never finished. And that's why they kept standing. Because they had to keep offering sacrifices because not one of the sacrifices that they offered was definitive. Not one of them was the final one. More had to continuously be offered. Not one sacrifice decisively dealt with the sins of men and women. So they had to stand and keep offering sacrifices. You know this dynamic in kind of everyday life. If you mow your lawn, you know that if you mow it once, it's not the decisive mow, right? Like, did it. That lawn's going to look beautiful. You know if you take supplements, right? You take supplements. You did not take a decisive supplement this morning. 
Like, I took this vitamin D, and I'm never going to need, living here in the Northeast, as far away from the equator as we are, I'm never going to need to take another vitamin D supplement for optimum vitamin D levels. No, you're going to have to keep taking it if you want vitamin D levels or find a way to be in the sun an amazing amount of time living here in the Northeast. You know, with exercise, I mean, one of the things that used to bother me uh, quite a bit when I would exercise, especially when I was like, younger, and you'd like, lift weights, whether they are heavy or moderate or light or whatever, you know that you've got to keep doing it. And what happens if you don't do it? Well, you're going you're to lose a lot of what you've worked to gain. You're not going to have a definitive workout. You say, okay, that was the one this morning. And that's going to protect my, uh, my blood pressure, my cholesterol. I'm going to be protected from sarcopenia and the wasting away of my muscle. I am set. My blood glucose is going to be fantastic going forward because of that definitive exercise. But you know at the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's nothing left for you to do. He sat down because his work was finished. It was a once and for all offering. That was it. The Levitical priesthood offering, 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 standing, standing, standing. But then comes the Son of God. And with one definitive offering, he puts away sin forever for all who would believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. And then after that, what does he do? He ascends to the right hand of the Father after he has purged our sins. And he sits down. Mission accomplished. The redemptive work is complete. His high priestly work of sacrifice done. Amazing. Oh, what a relief that brings. So when you think of Jesus ascending at the right hand of the Father, you not only think of the king who is reigning at the right hand of the Father, but you think about the high priest who is sitting because his work of sacrifice is complete. What does this mean for you and me? Oh, the implications are so great, aren't they? You don't have to live in perpetual, unending guilt. It's done. It's finished. Of course, it's not an excuse to live in sin or anything like that at all. No, not, not at all. But you don't have to live in perpetual guilt. You don't have to beat yourself up thinking that you could add to the work of Christ. You know that it was by his wounds that you were healed. And you don't have to keep beating yourself up as though you're going to add to his work. His work of sacrifice is complete. He sat down. You can live in freedom and forgiveness. Amazing. But with that being said, now somebody might think this. When you think of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, I don't want you to think of him being in some static position. Because somebody might think, okay, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. Does he ever get up? (laughs) And if he gets up, where does he go? And what does he do? I can't can't unpack all the dynamics of that, but I think the Scripture does speak to that. Revelation 2.1, we know that he's the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. But I think a great example for us to kind of better understand the heart of our Savior And to not see him as statically positioned at the right hand of the Father in a seated position, but to see his heart and his interest towards his beloved is found in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, it's the first martyr that we read about in the New Testament church, Stephen. Stephen is bearing witness of many things, including the Son of God. And when his hearers heard what he said, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Acts 7, 54. 
We read in verse 55, But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Verse 56, And said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, there's many opinions that could be given as to why Jesus is standing there. I'll tell you what I think. I think it's because the Son of God is communicating His real love and interest for His servant Stephen, who is suffering and is about to give his life as a martyr for Jesus' sake. It's as though you see the love and the interest that the seated Son of God stands. Maybe even a dynamic of being ready to welcome Stephen right to himself. The interest of the one who loved Stephen and gave himself for Stephen. The attention to Stephen's suffering. It's not like Jesus is sitting in bliss, indifferent to the suffering of his people. He's very mindful of it to the point where Stephen is about to die and there Jesus is looking at him, ready to receive him. Amazing. Amazing. Just to go on a little further, a little bit further, and then we'll close. If you were to think of more of the practical benefits, so we've seen the significance of the ascension, its connection to Jesus' coronation, the uniqueness of the God-man receiving glory, the fact that Jesus is sitting, how that connotes Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled, the authority that Jesus has, his high priestly work of sacrifice being complete, and yet at the same time at the right hand of the Father, he stands and beholds the suffering of his servant Stephen and is ready to receive him to himself. Are there other benefits of the ascension besides those that we've already considered? I think the Ascension also provides us with additional assurance of our salvation. Very interestingly, um, if you go through the scriptures and you see when um, Jesus' redemptive work, his dying for us, his rising for us, and even his ascending for us is connected to our union with him. The New Testament uses language like we died with him. Now we were raised with him. But it also says that we were raised to be seated in heavenly places with Christ. It's as though the scripture is painting this picture of this amazing union that transcends our ability to understand that you are so united with Jesus Christ in his death, in his resurrection, and even in his ascension to the fact that the scripture can say that you are seated in heavenly places with him in the sense that you have this true and real spiritual union with him via the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, if you think of the metaphor that's often used for the church in the scriptures as Christ being the head and the church being the body, scripture mixes metaphors, right? Sometimes the scripture will say, use the metaphor of the body of the church and speak about people in the church being the eyes and the mouth. The scripture is okay with mixing metaphors. Right now, I'm talking about the metaphor of Christ being the head of his church. So if you were to think of Christ as the head being in heaven, you could be assured that the entirety of the body will join him in heaven because there's such union between his body and himself. Not to mention this, he went to prepare a place for his people. He ascended into heaven. And I want to assure you, there will be no vacant spots. 
You know, one of the things that you'll never have to see when you go through heaven, you'll never be walking through the new Jerusalem, and you'll never see, oh, that room was prepared for so-and-so, but they're not here. It's just not going to happen. There's a people that God's had in his mind before the foundation of the world. There's a people for whom his son was sent very particularly. Jesus went to prepare a place. He prayed for those people. He prayed for them in his high priestly prayer. All who would believe on him through the word of the apostles. He prayed for them. He ascended for them after having died for them. And he went to prepare a place for them. And every bit of positioning, every place that is prepared will be filled. There will be no vacancies. So there should be great assurance in the hearts of sons and daughters of the living God that as your Savior is there, so you will be there also. And also we have, as far as a practical benefit that can come from the reality of the ascension, yet alone the consideration of it, is the fact that we have a heavenly intercessor. We have a heavenly intercessor. I want to just read to you some scriptures, and I'll make some comments as we prepare to close. Hebrews chapter um, 4, verses 14 through 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For, so there's a reason why you should hold fast to your confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So you have a heavenly intercessor who actually knows what it's like to be human. He knows what it's like to suffer. Far more than you could even imagine. He knows. We have a heavenly intercessor. I'm going to draw from Romans chapter 8. And beginning at verse 31, what shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Now watch this. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Now you'll see in some translations, it'll say in italics, it is, and the statement continues, God who justifies. And then you would go on and you'd see this question, who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God. I want to rewind for a moment and say, if you take out those italics, many people would argue that those are questions, kind of uh, rhetorical questions that the Apostle Paul is asking. So let me read it to you that way and let let, let me let you hear it that way. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God who justifies? Do you think God's going to bring a charge against his elect whom he justified and made peace with through the blood of his son? Go on to the next question. Verse 34. Who is he who condemns? Christ who died and furthermore is also risen who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? It's as though the Apostle Paul is saying, do you think that the Savior who loved you, gave himself for you, is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for you? He's going to condemn you? No. It would be folly to even consider that. Because he's at the right hand. He is your intercessor. He's your advocate. Who, as I heard many years ago, pleads, if you will, the perfect portfolio of his redemptive work. Amazing. 
can imagine Jesus' intercession uh, for us as well and the difference that that makes. It's tremendous. I think this reality is well illustrated in the difference between Peter and Judas. Among the differences between the two men, the following one is among ones most paramount. Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail, even though he was going to be sifted like wheat by Satan. And even as Jesus told Peter, you're going to be sifted, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And he told them, when you are restored, when you have returned, go and strengthen your brethren. We don't see that with Judas. Actually, see earlier, like in the Gospel of John, for instance, he knew, he knew, I've chosen you, but one of you is going to betray me, one of you is a son of perdition, one of you, and he even knew all of these things about Judas. Um, I say all that to say, he prayed for Peter, that Peter's faith would not fail. And if you have a high priest who is interceding at the right hand of the Father, and if it's Jesus, the Son of God, oh, what that should mean for you in your Christian life. It means everything. It's part of your security and the security that you actually have, but it could actually lead to joy in your life when you consider it. You will either, if you don't grab onto that, you will be either very nervous often as a Christian, or you will keep defining your Christianity as so impressive so you never have to doubt your own salvation. Like, if you don't believe that your salvation is secured because of the work that God has done and His sovereignty and choosing you and Christ's intercession for you, then a couple of things could happen. If you're thinking, if you're scrutinizing your life, you could say, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if I have it and I've lost it. I don't know if I, you know, I don't know where I stand. Or you could just calm yourself down by being continuously self-impressed with yourself. Maybe comparing yourself with others who you don't esteem to be as holy as you. And then you're like, I'm good. I'm better than a lot of other people. But I think the scripture would have you rejoicing in the fact that Jesus is interceding for you. He is your advocate. He's at the right hand of the Father. You can have joy. You are thought of. You are interceded for. You're not simply observed and rooted for. You serve a God whose will is greater than your own. And such sovereignty should make you and I marvel at his design, his power, and his affection towards us despite us. And there's so much more that could even be said. So I'll just make a brief comment. You're also enjoying today, uh, you're enjoying some of the fruits of Jesus' ascension. When you look around this room and you think about how Jesus has ascended on high, and when he ascended, to use language from Ephesians 4, you could dive into this yourself, it's beautiful, it's amazing. Ephesians 4, uh, verses like 7 through 12, You compare that with Psalm 68 um, and the text that's there. I think it's verse 18. You can look at the surrounding context. Jesus ascended on high and he gave gifts to men. When you look in the book of Ephesians, you see that some of those gifts are to be better identified as men, as gifts. He's given to the church gifted people. And so you, when you see others in this church who have been gifted, empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry in one way or another, you are a recipient of the benefits of Jesus' ascension. He ascended on high. He said it was expedient. It was better for his disciples if he went, because if he didn't go, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. So he ascended on high, and at the right hand of the Father on the day of Pentecost, he poured out the Holy Spirit, and he continues to give gifts unto men. 
which would include gifts in the body of Christ. In Ephesians 4, you see like evangelists, pastors, teachers, the foundational gifts of the church like the apostles and prophets. And doubtless, when you go on through the New Testament, you could see the gifts of the Holy Spirit as seen in the members of the body of Christ. Oh, there are so many benefits that we have derived and continue to derive from Jesus' ascension to the right hand of the Father. But with that, we, we close. Let us pray. Father, oh, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for the one, even as we've considered today, the one who's ascended on high after, after having been conceived in the womb of a virgin, after having lived the perfect life that we could not live, after absorbing your wrath in totality with his once and for all sufficient offering upon the cross, after having been buried and after having risen from the dead for our justification and to secure our regeneration, we thank you that he ascended to your right hand in fulfillment of prophecy at the right hand of you, our Father, exercising authority, the one to whom all authority on heaven and earth has been given, the one who is seated at your right hand. We thank you that he is our advocate, that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Father, may the implications that we have considered today, yet also the significance of the event itself, may it help us, Lord, to set our minds upon heavenly things. These amazing heavenly realities and the way in which, like a river that cannot be blocked, those blessings continue to flow out towards your people. What a God you are. Help us to glorify you in our consideration and in our growing fluency and communication as it relates to the amazing doctrine of Jesus' ascension. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.